English rock group Pink Floyd from their Dark Side of the Moon album. Probably their signature song is Money. If you've heard that song, you know how it begins with the cash registers clanging? In the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko has a famous speech in which he says, Greed is good. We're looking at the seven deadly sins, beginning a series on that. And the first that we're going to talk about is the sin of greed. Thomas Aquinas said that pride is the worst of all sins because it was the devil's sins. But Martin Luther thought covetousness was the worst sin and said that all other sins come from coveting what others have, including God. Someone defined greed as the desire to have more, often at the expense of others. So money is going to be my focus on this topic of greed, but one can be greedy for anything. can be greedy for popularity. I want to make sure I have a lot of likes on my social media platforms. I could be greedy for power. I could be greedy to have the largest church in town. The thing desired becomes a rival God, and it becomes an end in itself. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of the clearest instances and descriptions of greed in the Bible comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Shell Oil founder J.D. Rockefeller was asked, what could make you happier? And he said, just a little more money. Phyllis Tickle, in her famous book, Greed, said, Greed thrives among comfortable people with few needs. That describes America pretty well. 84% of Americans wish they had more money. 76% of Americans say money makes them feel good, successful, and happy. And 72% of Gen Xers believe they will be rich someday. Well, I have to say that while I believe capitalism is the best human economic system because it rewards innovation and risk, it enables more productivity, it benefits the most people, yet it's not a perfect system either. It's easily abused, can result in fatigue, debt, worry, conflict, and dissatisfaction. And it is a deadly sin, greed, Because it becomes a rival God which separates us from God. And plenty of examples in the Bible. We could look at the stories of Balaam and Simon the sorcerer, the men of Crete, Elisha's servant Gehazi, Ananias and Sapphira, Achan, who coveted the spoils of war even though they were forbidden. Greed is bad for the soul, like the farmer who built bigger and bigger barns and cost him his life. Why are we so rarely satisfied with what we have? Why do we spend ourselves into debt and only about a third of people pay off their monthly credit card bill? 
I want to share with you this morning three lies that we believe about money. Remember last week we talked about how what we think determines how we act and behave. So I want you to do some soul searching this morning and just say, have I believed any of these lies about money? The first is we believe having more things will make us happy. We already saw that in our survey. It's a cultural thing. The one who dies with the most toys wins. We see what everyone else has and we want to have it too. By the time you graduated high school through social media and television commercials, you've seen about 350,000 ads saying you can't live without it. And we believe it and we buy it. You can't afford it. That's okay. Just go into debt. A girl said of her mom, she's only happy when she's shopping. Then her credit cards got stolen. And the little girl asked her dad, did you report Mommy's credit cards that were stolen. He said, no, the thieves spend less than your mom. This cultural belief is seeped into the church with the health and wealth gospel. Let me share two fairly long quotes, but I really think they share to me a disturbing trend in the church. I believe this first one is David Wilkerson sharing. Someone sent me a videotape of a convention sponsored by a well-known prosperity preacher. I was so appalled by what was being taught, I could hardly contain myself. It was blasphemy. One preacher boasted, I just spent 15000 for a dog. This ring on my finger cost me 32000 I live in an 8,000-square-foot house, but I'm going to build a bigger one, one Solomon would be proud of. When the people in my town see my big house and my Rolls Royce in the driveway, they will know there is a God in heaven. I wanted to weep because the entire time he spoke, people were running on stage and stuffing money into his pockets. Another speaker warned the crowd, do not ever give to the poor. Give only to the successful. You'll be successful yourself only as you give to the successful. Giving to the poor is a waste of your money. These greedy men were boasting about their multi-million dollar homes, jewelry, multi-million dollar jet planes, and luxury cars. One boasted he had $10 million. They all claimed to be rich men. The tragedy was the people loved it. In recent weeks, one of the prosperity movement's most famous preachers said of God's holy word, the Bible is simply a roadway to wealth. Another promise, come to my church and you'll be assured of becoming wealthy. The secular world ridicules such a gospel. The October 22nd edition of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, including an article entitled, The Rich Messiah of the Prosperity Gospel. The idea behind the article was that the prosperity preachers now claim Jesus was a wealthy man because he had to support 12 associates and pay for their travel expenses. According to this theory, Christ's clothes had to be expensive for the Roman soldiers to gamble for them. And Jesus himself had to be wealthy since his entourage required an accountant. Moreover, Jesus had to be rich in order to support his mother after he died. And he couldn't have been homeless since no one ever heard of a carpenter who didn't build a house for himself. 
Now there is a claim of a newly discovered older document that tells of 200 kings visiting Jesus's crib. I never heard of this. These kings come laden with gold as gifts for the Christ child. Finally, the article said the prosperity preachers claim Jesus could not have been poor because Scripture states the words of a poor man are soon forgotten. Since Jesus's words are remembered and since no one would ever follow a man who is broke, he had to be rich. Sad, isn't it? The last quote is the one that shocked me the most. I think, how can people misinterpret Scripture that badly? If things buy happiness, then it seems to reason that the most happy people would be the richest. But is that true? Is that what we find? No, we don't find that. Of course, it makes you happy for a while. But then the thrill wears off and the new car smell fades. Can you still remember what you got for Christmas when you were eight years old? Lasting happiness is not in getting more and more stuff. It's being content with what you have. Second lie we believe, having more things will make us more important. Having more things will make us important. We believe our valuables make us valuable. If I have little, then I have little worth. We want to be liked. We want to be cool. We want to fit in. We want what everybody else has. We want to keep up with the Joneses. Now we've got to keep up with the Joneses' baby. We're in a rat race to accumulate more and more to impress people that we don't like. This guy wrecked his BMW and he was laying on the ground moaning, my new BMW. And so a man runs over and says, sir, do you know that your arm was severed? He said, oh, no, is my new Rolex watch damaged? So what's the truth? Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Our culture says your net worth determines your self-worth. And that's a lie. Here's a third lie we believe. We believe having more things will make us more secure. If my bank account is fat, then I'm secure. I'm safe. That's a lie. Listen to the story Jesus told in Luke 12, 18 to 21. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'm sure his neighbors were impressed that he was expanding his bars, but God wasn't impressed. He said, you're a fool. Did you notice all the eyes and knees and mys of that section? God had been replaced by money in his life. A couple places in the book of Proverbs. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Our dollar bills have an eagle on them. 
seems like they fly away too. So a rich man died, and he had told his wife, promise me that when I die, you'll put all my money in the casket with me. I want to take it with me in the afterlife. And she promised. So on the day of his funeral, she put a box in the casket with him. And one of her friends said, you didn't put all his money in that box, did you? She said, well, I promised I'd give him all his money, so I wrote him a check. It was an interesting article how monkeys are captured, how they used to be captured for zoos. They would take a coconut and drill a hole in it. And they would put a chain on the coconut. And they'd lay it out there and the monkeys would come and they'd put candy in the hole. And the hole was drilled just big enough so the monkey could slip his hand in. But when he got a hold of the candy, he couldn't get it out. And so the captors would just simply come out of the bushes and grab the monkey who would not let go of the candy. Similar with catching wild pigs. I read how they put corn down and the pigs would come out, the wild pigs, and eat it. So they'd build one side of a fence and then leave for the day. Put out the corn, the pigs would come back again. Then they'd build a second side of the fence, then a third side, and then a fourth side with a gate left open. Put the corn down, the pigs would come in. Then they'd come out and just merely shut the gate. And the pigs were trapped. We get possessed by our possessions. What if God told you, I want you to give it away? What would you say? I'm going to tell you a little, really silly, almost embarrassing example from my life when I was much younger. When I was at college, I had a fancy briefcase. I was very proud of that briefcase. I would carry that around from class to class. The code to get in the briefcase was 007. Kind of tells you what I was thinking about myself at that time, doesn't it? So I'm walking around campus with my fancy briefcase, looking down my nose on all the other students with their backpacks. I was proud. And I was walking around one day. I just had this thought come into my head, and I think this must be from the Lord, because I didn't think it was my line of thinking. And that thought that came into my mind was, what if, Someone came up to you and asked for your briefcase, what would you do? And you know what my first initial thought was? I'd hit him in the head with it. I am not giving them my briefcase. And the rich young ruler, he was like me. He, he couldn't give it up either. In Mark 10, 21 to 23, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to go to heaven if you're rich. Remember who Jesus was speaking to as he told this story. A third world country. His audience were mostly poor people, but they made money their security too. Our possessions own us. We become their slave. There's more to buy and take care of. We have to polish it, repair it, prune it, paint it, replace it. We put stuff before people. First Timothy 
6.9 in the Living Bible says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. A husband won the lottery. And he called his wife and told her to start packing. And she said, for hot or cold weather. And he said, it doesn't matter. Just so you're gone when I get home. Money makes us crazy. We do weird things. It changes you. It becomes a rival God. Paul in Ephesians 5, 5 said, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, right? Rival God has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do you see the danger of this sin for yourself, for me, for our soul? Paul is writing this to Christians, not to the pagan world. The danger is it becomes the most important things in our lives. It becomes a rival God. We believe it gives us security, and that's a lie. That's why the ancients said it's a deadly sin. So these are the three lies that we can believe. Money will make me happy, important, and secure. It's wrong thinking. So what's the truth? What does the Bible say about those things? Number one, we find happiness in helping others. We find happiness in helping others. Acts 20, verse 35. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that word blessed could be translated as happy, just like in the Beatitudes. So the key to happiness isn't getting more stuff. It's in helping others. It's in serving humanity. Our CAP team members, they know that. One of my favorite Sundays of the year is when our group of folks that have gone to Appalachia and helped do repairs on people's houses, when they come back and they report what they did. I love to hear those stories. They're so inspiring. Giving of yourself. You know, it's easy to write a check, and that's not a bad thing to do. But a better thing to do is to give yourself to plug into ministry. Who can I help? That's true happiness. Secondly, we find our self-worth in knowing our purpose. We find our self-worth in knowing our purpose. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 4. Just the first part of the verse. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Wow, think about that for a moment. That God feels that way about you. You're precious to him. You're honored in his sight and he loves you. Isn't that enough? Does God feel that way about you because you're rich or because you're better looking than everybody else? No, he created you. He made you. You're the apple of his eye. And that's what gives you self-worth. That unconditional love that you know will always be there for you by the Father. When I'm feeling insecure, I have to buy certain clothes. I have to live in a certain neighborhood. I have to drive a certain car. It's a trap. When I grew up, we lived in a trailer park in a rough part of town. And I was always so ashamed of where we lived. I would never invite my friends over. I didn't want anyone to know where I grew up and lived. 
So I vowed as a young person, someday I'm going to have a nice house, a big house, a fancy house and nice cars. But then I realized God loves you no matter what. He loves you for you. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the cross that proves your worth, not how much you're worth. You were worth dying for by the Son of God. That's true importance. Since God created you and died for you, that means you have a purpose. You're here for a reason. You have a cause. You have a mission. You have a work to do for Him. There are things that God has designed that only you can do for Him. You don't have to prove your worth to anyone else. Your self-worth depends on what God says about you, not other people. Matthew 6, 26, Jesus said, Look at the birds of the air. They, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God said, Jesus says, Your Father's going to take care of the little birds of the air. He knows each one. He'll take care of you. Why not get out of the rat race? Why don't you stop trying to keep those plates spinning and just know I'm important to God. My value is in him. Thirdly, we find security in trusting God. We find security in trusting God. God has given us in his word all kinds of great promises. Here, here's one that I think is awesome. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Folks, that's security. Money is the chief rival God here. Stop worshiping it and start worshiping God. He promises to meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He will take care of you so you can chillax. Money isn't evil, but the love of it is. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do I trust God or my bank account? Now, there are wealthy people who love and trust God. We could say Abraham. We could look at Job for starters. Love God and people and use things. Money is a good and useful tool to be used for good purposes, but not to love. Use money, don't love it. Love people, don't use them. We sometimes reverse that. What would be better, to have a million dollars in the bank and no God in your life? Or have little cash and God Almighty on your side? Money can be stolen, right? God can't. What's going to be there in a thousand years, your bank account or God? Our security is in God. Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, let heaven be your nest egg. Build it there. You're protected and 
insured by God. That bank account will be. Don't hoard it for personal indulgence. Use money to do good. In heaven, if you're asked, you won't be asked how much did you accumulate, but might be asked what did you give away. So how do I store up treasures in heaven? Invest it in people going there. First Timothy six eighteen and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. So give to enterprises like God's church and his world mission enterprise. I'm so thankful to this congregation who last Sunday approved our board of elders giving away $80,000 to denominational and local ministries that are doing the work of the Lord. Thank you for approving that. Give to those people and groups that are making a difference for eternity. And I, as a pastor, want to say thank you for your faithful giving to the Lord's work here. So if we would ask ourselves, how easy would it be for me to give it away? Man, I hate that question. I think the most sensitive nerve is from your brain to your wallet. I'm easily irritated by that question. So I ask myself, what am I really trusting? Is it God or mammon? Is it money and things? Which is it? And the world we live in, it's really difficult to navigate that. And it's easy to think, yeah, that, I know this sermon today, that, that's for that rich guy over there. It doesn't apply to me. I'm certainly not rich. It's the oil companies that are rich. No, we, need, we need to think about it. And, and that's what the ancients thought, that the seven deadly sins were a diagnostic tool for our souls. So take the scriptures and the outline today. And pray about it. Ponder it. And say, God. What do you have in this for me? I'm going to close with uh, a story that Tolstoy tells in his book, Elias. This is what I think about it. My old man and I lived for 50 years seeking happiness and not finding it. And it is only now, these last two years, since we had nothing left and we've lived as laborers, that we found real happiness. And we wish for nothing better than our present lot. The guests were astonished, and so was the master. He even rose and drew the curtain back so as to see the old woman's face. There she stood with her arms folded, looking at her old husband and smiling, and he smiled back at her, and the old woman went on. I speak the truth and do not jest. For half a century we sought for happiness, and as long as we were rich, we never found it. Now that we have nothing left and have taken service as labors, we have found such happiness that we want nothing better. But in what does your happiness consist, asked one of the guests. Why, in this, she replied, when we were rich, my husband and I had so many cares that we had no time to talk to one another or to think about our souls or to pray to God. Now we have had visitors. We had to consider what food to set before them and what presents to give them, lest they should speak ill of us. When they left we had to look after our laborers who were always trying to shirk work and get the best food while we wanted to get all we could out of them. So we sinned. 
Then we were in fear lest a wolf should kill a foal or a calf or thieves steal our horses. We lay awake at night worrying lest the ewes would overlie their lambs. And we get up again and again to see that all was well. One thing attended to, another care would spring up. How, for instance, to get enough fodder for the winter. And beside that, my old man and I used to disagree. He would say we must do so and so, and I would differ with him. And then we disputed, sinning again. So we passed from one trouble, from one sin to another, and found no happiness. Well, and now? Now, when my husband and I wake in the morning, we always have a loving word for one another. And we live peacefully, having nothing to quarrel about. We have no care but how best to serve our master. We work as much as our strength allows, and we do it with a will that our master may not lose but profit by us. When we come in, dinner or supper is ready, and there is cometh to drink. We have fuel to burn when it is cold, and we have our fur cloak. And we have time to talk, to think of our souls. Time to pray. For 50 years we sought happiness, but only now, at last, we have found it. The guests laughed. But Elias said, do not laugh, friends. It is not a matter for jesting. It is the truth of life. We also were foolish at first, wept at the loss of our wealth. But now God has shown us the truth. And we tell it, not for our own consolation, but for your good. And the master said, That is a wise speech. Elias has spoken the exact truth. The same is said in the Holy Writ. And the guests ceased laughing and became thoughtful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which tells us the truth about the things of this world, which we put our hope and our confidence and our love in. Lord, show us the truth. And let us follow your word and do it and have true blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.